0: This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest Robert Williamson Jr. takes us on a tour of the parts of the Bible that are often overlooked. We learn the benefit that believers can derive from looking closely at these forgotten books of the Bible. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson, Jr. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. His work appears in the Journal for the Study of Old Testament, The Dead Sea Discoveries, and Teaching Theology and Religion. It also appears online at On Scripture, The Huffington Post, Sojourners, and Political Theology Today. He's the co-editor of Imagination, Ideology, and Inspiration, Echoes of Brueggemann in a New Generation. We're discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today. Well, Robert Williamson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So this book is intended to open up for readers... Some books that are in the Bible, but are rarely talked about in church or in worship. Let's talk about what those books are. You refer to them as the five scrolls, but what are those five scrolls?
1: So the five scrolls are books that are in the Christian Old Testament. They're also in the Jewish canon, the Tanakh. And specifically, they're the books Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. I refer to them as the five scrolls because in the Jewish tradition, those five books are a collection that are read on Jewish holidays. And so in the Jewish tradition, they are called the five scrolls. So I brought that language over.
0: Now, Christian readers may be familiar with another reference to five books in the Bible, and that would be the Torah. But these are not the Torah. These are a different set of readings. Is that correct?
1: That's right, yes. So the Torah, the the five books of Moses, kind of a central tradition of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. These five books, uh, a collection that are pretty marginal in the Christian tradition, uh, but have been brought into the Jewish tradition as as festival scrolls.
0: And you use this word marginal, and in fact, there are a couple points where in this book, the Forgotten Books of the Bible, you talk about marginality and sort of speaking from the margins. And so when you're using this term marginal, what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, well, I'm thinking about the difference between the central tradition, those things that are kind of at the core of our liturgy, the core of our understanding of the Bible, and then those things that are on the periphery, sort of on the, if you think of, the, of a sheet of paper right there, out there along the edges. So these books, when I talk about them as marginal, I, I mean that they are in our tradition, they're on the page, but in our practice, they tend to be pushed kind of all the way to the edge of the way that we tend to engage the Bible, so they don't have as much of a presence or as much of a voice in the conversations that take place around the Bible and churches as uh, as some other books might
0: some of my listeners are going to say, well, of course we know what the central message of the Bible is. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And so why should we bother to pay attention to voices or messages in the Bible that are not keying into that main message that my listeners might think or identify?
1: Right. And so I'm not in any way suggesting that the, the main or the core tradition shouldn't continue to be a main or core tradition. But what I'm suggesting is that our forefathers and foremothers in the faith had the wisdom to include these books in the biblical canon, and therefore my commitment is that they have something to teach us, they have a voice that matters within the faith alongside those other more central traditions. So when we think about, well, what is the Bible and what, what are the books that are there, What I think is that those books have all been preserved for us by the people who came before as things that we need to hear and things that we need to talk about. You know, I wouldn't suggest that Lamentations needs to replace Genesis, you know, or the Gospels, but that it needs to be read alongside those as a legitimate scriptural voice unto itself, and the same with the the rest of those five books.
0: Now, why is it, in your estimation, that these five books have gotten pushed to the side? What is it about their content, or what is it about the way that our reading has changed in maybe the last 50, 100, 200 years that has shifted these books out of central conversation?
1: I think there are a number of reasons that are contributing to that. One of them is where you started a little bit ago to say that in the Christian tradition, we have tended to read what we call the Old Testament in so much as it points forward uh, in some kind of direct way to Jesus. And so we read Isaiah, and we read Genesis, and we read Exodus. Um, those books have uh, clear, sort of linear connections to the New Testament, and we have often kind of lost touch of those books that don't point to Jesus in that same direct kind of way. I also think, at least in the traditions that I have participated in, which have a three-year lectionary, we call it cycle of texts, that, we, that tell us you know, which scriptures we would read on a given Sunday morning and what we would preach from. These books, each four of them show up only one time in that three-year cycle. The fifth one, which is Ruth, shows up just twice. And so in three years, each of these books gets only one or maybe two appearances, and then it's alongside, you know, a psalm and a gospel text and a Pauline letter, and so many preachers are going to preach the gospel text before they teach the Lamentations or the Song of Songs text, so they've just kind of fallen out of our daily use, I think, or even our weekly use, or even our annual use, I think, for those reasons. They also have kind of a different perspective on things. They are oftentimes, as I, as I talk about in the book, they're, they're oftentimes arguing a little bit with other theologies in the Old Testament. And so they're creating some tension within the tradition, I think, which if you want kind of a, a smooth, the whole of the Bible speaks in one voice, these books cause some problems. They stir things up a little bit.
0: You are not only a professor of religious studies at Hendricks College, but you also are the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church there in Little Rock. Tell us a little bit about that church and how it came to be founded.
1: Sure. So Mercy Community Church of Little Rock is a community that I founded along with some other pastor friends in the, in the Little Rock area in 2015. So we've been, we've been a community for about three and a half years now. We actually based our model uh, of Mercy Community Church of Little Rock on a church that is was founded in Atlanta called Mercy Community Church by Pastor Chad Hyatt back, I think they've been there uh, 12 or 13 years now. And the commitment of his community, which is also the commitment of our community, is that people who live on the street, people who are living with mental illness, people who are living with addictions need a place where they can come and find a community of welcome, community of hospitality, community where they are accepted and acknowledged as the beautiful creations of God who made them in God's own image. And our experience has been that it is difficult for people who live on the street to find places where they can be fully recognized as children of God. And so we created Mercy Community Church for that purpose. We are primarily a place where people who live on the street feel like they belong. They're not coming to receive services. They're not coming for us to give them a meal or for us to give them clothes. They're coming to be part of a community together. We also welcome people who are middle class or upper middle class, people who have jobs and are fully employed. We're trying to build relationships that connect those two communities. But our commitment has been, first, we want to be a place where people on the street feel like they belong. And then uh, if other people can also join in with that community, then then we want to be there for them
0: as well. This sounds very reminiscent of Jesus' early ministry, where he wasn't just welcoming those who were on the upper parts of society, but also those who were broken, those who were sick, those who were outcast. So this is really the animating principle, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Our kind of um, uh, informal mission statement is, because we believe Jesus welcomed all people, so do we. Uh, so it's very much for us modeled on when, when we read the Gospels, this is what we see, Jesus doing is welcoming people who have no other uh, source of welcome. And that's, that is always our goal. Some days we do it better than other days, but that's always what we're trying to do is is live up to that model of, of Christ. Well, one other thing about our church is we're we're a very low-budget place. I I work uh, as the pastor down there, and I don't draw a salary. And um, the Christ Episcopal Church in downtown Little Rock gives us space down the, uh, in their basement a couple days a week, and so we, we have intentionally tried as much as we can to keep sort keep money out of the picture so that the, the church is not a place that's trying to support my livelihood or is not a place um, that's trying to raise money, but just a, a place where people can get together and be together. It's a, it's a really beautiful model of church. I, I, uh, I have really loved being a part of that community.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson, Jr. about his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson, Jr. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today. Well, Professor Williamson, you were telling us before the break about your work at Mercy Community Church. And you start your book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, with a story about two members of this church, which is, you know, your church is focused on homeless and marginal communities, and you you talk about one particular event that began to open up for you, the Book of Ruth. So I was wondering if you could read that passage for our listeners.
1: Sure. So this is from the introduction to the book. The most beautiful lesson I have ever learned about the Bible was taught to me by a gay, homeless couple struggling to survive on the streets of Little Rock, Arkansas, where I live. Mind you, I'm an ordained minister and a biblical studies professor with a Ph.D., so I have learned a lot of lessons about the Bible. I have also taught a lot of lessons about the Bible myself, but none as beautiful as this one. The text was the Book of Ruth, and the context was a marriage proposal. These two men had been together for nearly a decade, though they hadn't been homeless at first. They had ended up living on the streets when Donnie, one partner in the couple, had been shot in the face, damaging part of his frontal lobe. The injury meant that he could no longer hold a job or even function well in society, as he had suffered a loss of impulse control and was in a great deal of constant pain. So Donnie moved to the streets. His partner, Fred, still had an apartment and a steady job, but he couldn't bear the thought of Donnie living on the streets all alone. So he gave up his apartment, quit his job, and became homeless so he could support the man that he loved. On the day of the marriage proposal, some five or six years later, Donnie expressed his love for Fred by relating their story to that of the biblical character Ruth, who had likewise given up her life to support her mother-in-law, Naomi, in her time of greatest need. Donnie wept as he recited Ruth's words of commitment to Naomi, used so often in wedding services, but never with such profound resonance. Wherever you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. That's Ruth 1, 16 and 17. I had never understood the profundity of Ruth until that moment. I had never known what it meant to truly give up your life to love someone else.
0: And that's our guest, Robert Williamson, Jr., reading from the introduction of his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today. I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of my listeners are going to have a problem with what you just read, because for them, marriage fits into a plan ordained by God that has to do with a man and a woman. I would venture to say a lot of our contemporary churches are designed to keep people like those that you're describing here, Fred and Donnie, out of their pews. First of all, am I on base with that?
1: Well, I don't know that I know enough about the churches that that are out there and how they would specifically respond to this particular couple. But I do know that a lot of my friends at Mercy Church have difficulty finding a place uh, where they feel comfortable and fully welcomed on Sunday mornings.
0: But you say in what you just read that this helped you to understand the book of Ruth in a way that you never had before. Tell us a little bit more about that. What what became clear to you in that moment?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think that, that um, those verses from Ruth had always seemed to me kind of a, of a nice little statement about two people committing their lives to each other. But when I met Donnie and Fred, and I learned that Fred literally gave up his life to go and live as a homeless person, to give up his job, to give up his apartment, to sleep outside, to be in the cold, to not know where his next meal was coming from, because this person, Donnie, was the person that he that he loved. That That is a level of commitment that is hard for me to imagine, and to me, these these two guys are are remarkable, and that my understanding of what Ruth had done, um, giving up her homeland, giving up her family, giving up her religious background, to be with this this woman whom whom she loved, that is, to me, much more what Donnie and Fred have done uh, than anything that I have ever experienced myself.
0: Well, and so in the chapter on Ruth, in your book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, you really set the context for this. You place Ruth into the context of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you say that what we're really seeing here in these books is a community that is fearful. And part of how it's expressing that fear is in strong anti-immigrant sentiment. And in fact, you compare Ruth to someone who would have been a target for deportation in her time. Is that? Do you want to say more about that?
1: Yeah. So the Book of Ruth is set in the period of the Judges. That is, um, in the period before there were kings in Israel. But we think that it was probably written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That it's it's a story that is written about the about the past. And in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read those books, the people uh, have been in exile in Babylon for hundred and fifty years and they've come back to the land and they're trying to figure out why they were defeated by the Babylonians, why they lost their homeland. And what they conclude is it was because a married foreign women and raised children with them. And so there's this tragic scene at the end of the book of Ezra where the people decide they need to cast out all the foreign women and their children, and they just send them on their way to sort of purify the, the land of Judea or the, the land of Israel. And so if you read Ruth in that context, where there is this anxiety about immigrants, this anxiety about foreigners, this is a story that says, look, here's a foreign woman a Moabite. The Bible, the Old Testament does not generally like Moabites. And she came, she committed herself to her Israelite mother-in-law. She learned Israelite customs. She worked to support her Israelite family. And so if, if Ruth can do that, then our suspicion about foreign women is overdrawn. They are able to be good members of our society. And at the end of the book of Ruth, we learned that Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest king of ancient Israel. So even King David, who, who's kind of like the George Washington of ancient Israel, he's like the founding figure, his great-grandmother was, was a Moabite. And so even when they're thinking about the very fundamental foundations of Israel, foreigners were always a part of that. And so I suggest that maybe that also could be read in our own context when when there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty in the contemporary United States about the role of immigrants and how we treat them and um, how accepted they can be in our society. The Book of Ruth invites us into a conversation about that in a different kind of a way
0: than, than we sometimes have. Well, and you raise up the fact that there's a tension in the book of Ruth where at points, Ruth kind of acts like a model minority. And other times she or the description of her it's reinforcing some of the negative stereotypes that we have about foreigners. So there's both kind of trickery and treachery, but there's also really great character shown by Ruth at various points. And that I think that tension is important to bring out because, as you're saying, even in our contemporary world, sometimes we, we try and draw out those who are coming to our shores as refugees or as immigrants in kind of black and white terms.
1: Right. Yeah, so when I read the book of Ruth, I mean, I, I only can read it as who I am, which is a, as a white American man. And so when I read the Book of Ruth, I see this kind of celebration of immigrants. Let's, let's welcome immigrants as, to be part of our community. In the writing of the book, I was very much instructed by other scholars, and particularly in this case women of color, to read the Book of Ruth from the perspective of the character of Ruth who is a foreigner in a land where her culture is not the dominant culture. And for me, they raise these kinds of concerns about um, Gail Yi, who is a Chinese-American biblical scholar. I think she's fourth generation in the United States, maybe. And she says, you know, Ruth is called the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite, it's almost like it becomes her last name in the book. You can't talk about Ruth without also talking about her Ethnicity of origin. And um, she, Gail Yi uses the language of um, perpetual foreigner to talk about that, that no matter how long Ruth stays or how good of a citizen Ruth is, she's always seen as an other. And Dr. Yi says that's similar to her own experience as a fourth generation Chinese American, where people still ask her where she's from. And when she says, I'm from Chicago, they say, No, where are you really from? And so reading from her perspective has helped me to think, even in my good and well-intentioned reading of Ruth, toward the acceptance and inclusion of immigrants, that that I myself tend toward perpetually othering people, uh, not not letting them just be like now they are part of the community, but they are still, you know, foreigners who are part of our community. And so, Gail Yi has helped me think um, think about my own attitudes and uh, and interactions with Americans of other ethnic origins than my own in different kinds of ways. To me, this is a parallel to a conversation that we're having in the U.S. now, where some folks like Ezra and Nehemiah think that the way to sort of make America great again is to to limit people coming into our nation and. I think that the Book of Ruth is, is offering a counterpoint to that, um, to say now as then, maybe we should think about uh, the ways in which people of foreign origins have always contributed and always have been part of what America is. and Maybe our uh, future greatness lies in embracing that, uh, that diversity rather than trying to limit it.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson Jr. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor at Mercy Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not seen radio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson Jr. He's associate professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor of Mercy Community Church of Little Rock, Arkansas. We're discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, recovering the five scrolls for today. Well, in your book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, as you describe the way in which Mercy Community Church there in Little Rock functions, you say that you read the Bible conversationally in your congregation. And first of all, I want to ask you what you mean by that.
1: Well, the principle that, that I intend by saying we read conversationally is that I think that Scripture is a starting point for conversation about what it means to be people of faith trying to make our way in the, in the world that we inhabit. And so my commitment is that reading Scripture together with people who have different experiences, different backgrounds, different commitments, enriches the conversation and helps us all think more deeply about Scripture and also more deeply about what it means to be people of faith. So I tend to be less interested in finding simple and direct answers when I read Scripture and more interested in trying to understand the complexities and possibilities of what it means to be a person who holds these texts as sacred. So that's, that's the idea of what we're doing. And in at Mercy Church, the way that that plays out is uh, when we read a text together, I will often invite other people to read the text out loud, ask them what stands out to them in the scripture, what Characters? Do they relate to what? Um, what kinds of themes seem important to you? And my role as pastor in that community is not to, to preach a message. We don't we don't have a sermon, but rather to facilitate a conversation. So I know some things about scripture from my PhD background that other folks may not know, and so I I offer some historical background or I offer some possible interpretations. But I never do that as, this way that I'm about to tell you is the right way, but as a way of saying, have you thought about this? And if so, like how does that sound to you? So what we're doing as a community is, is wrestling together with what any particular scripture we're reading says to us. And we're okay if there are 20 of us reading and we come up with 20 variations of what the scripture holds for us on that day. We, we don't need conformity. We want depth of
0: dialogue. Well, you mention in the book that just what you said, that you're really not aiming for agreement so much as understanding. So as as I was reading about this practice of you sort of opening up the floor to, as you said, maybe 20 different readings of a given text, it reminded me a lot of a book that I read in seminary. The Gospel in Salentaname by Ernesto Cardinal, and he went down into Central America, and he did very much what you were doing, where he sat with farm workers, and instead of telling them what the text meant, he let them illuminate the text from their experience. And I'm wondering, what was it in your background, your training, that made you comfortable taking this kind of approach? Because let's be honest, a lot of our Academic training is designed to pull us away from opening up the floor, but rather to be the expert in that moment. So what made you feel safe in allowing other voices into the conversation?
1: There, so there are several kind of things that fit together here. One of them is that um, all the way through seminary, which was for me, twenty years ago in uh, in Atlanta at Columbia Theological Seminary. All the way through seminary, I was studying theology on campus, and then I was working with people living on the streets in Atlanta at a little community that was there um, at the time called the Open Door Community that welcomes—it's sort of of in the way Mercy Church does—welcomes folks who are uh, living on the street. And so for me, those two pieces have always gone together, thinking about theology, thinking about the Bible, and then being on the street and working with people for whom the the system doesn't work very well. And so I have—almost the whole time I've been really engaging the Bible, I've been trying to fit those worlds together. How does the Bible, how does faith help us think about— or what it means to be brothers and sisters of people who are, who are living outside. Academically, one of my mentors is a fellow named Gerald West who lives in South Africa and teaches at the University of KwaZulu, Natal. And he was in the early 80s in apartheid South Africa using sort of this conversational, community-based Bible study as ways of helping people, black South Africans, think about um, how is the Bible a text that can help our community find the strength and the courage to overcome apartheid. And so he showed me that there's there's real power in this way of reading with people. Academically, I'm also uh, informed by um, Paulo Freire, who was a Brazilian scholar who thinks about what is the purpose of teaching, what is the purpose of education. His position was that it's to empower communities to have say in their own circumstances, and his argument is the way that we do that is we teach people to be uh, their own interpreters, to be self-authors, to be people whose ideas they believe their own ideas matter, Rather than experts kind of depositing our ideas onto communities that we may not fully understand, so those different pieces to me fit together in this model. And you know, I'm not always comfortable doing it, and sometimes Bible studies run away from me in ways that I don't that I don't know how to control, and that that challenges me as as somebody who wants to be an expert in these things. But sometimes I think that the, when the community has Has taken hold of the reins and I can't pull them back. uh, That that maybe I've actually done uh, some of the things that I care about.
0: What strikes me about your answer is how much it meshes with your analysis of the Book of Lamentations here in your recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible. So you point out to the readers that. Lamentations doesn't speak with one voice. It speaks with multiple voices. You highlight the funeral singer, the daughter of Zion, the strong man, the scoffer, and even a chorus, a communal voice that's all sort of an argument within this book. And they're all dealing with the common experience of trauma. But they're dealing with that trauma in a variety of voices and a variety of experiential ways. And what I love about the answer that you just gave is that you spoke about another moment of trauma in South Africa and the ways in which multiple voices were brought in to deal with that. And we're speaking about the trauma of homelessness and your your experience there in Mercy Community Church as well. So let's pivot to talk a little bit about Lamentations. As we begin to look at this book, why is it important for us to pay attention to a voice or voices that are dealing with trauma or even post-traumatic stress?
1: That's a great question. The, The book of Lamentations is written from the perspective of people who have just survived the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 BCE. And so the perspective we get is people living in the land after the city has been destroyed. They've been through this extended siege and this extended violence, and now they're trying to figure out what do we do next. So it is very much a traumatized community. And, you know, the reality of our world is there are, there are traumatized people among us all the time. And uh, homelessness, as you say, is, is an instance of that people who have been in the prison system, people who have in various ways been mistreated by our society. And so I think it's important for us as communities of faith to figure out how do we make space for people who have experienced trauma, and especially those of us who haven't experienced trauma. What is our role in being a good community for those who have? So what I see in the Book of Lamentations, as you say, is, Four different voices, Uh, one I call Daughter Zion and the other, the strong man, seem themselves to have been through, through this traumatic experience. And then two voices, the funeral singer and that fellow I call the scoffer, who seem to have been at some distance from the actual experience of trauma. And what Lamentations does is it lets each of them speak their truth as they understand it. And the book never settles on which one of them got it right. So, for instance, Daughter Zion, who is a personification of the city of Jerusalem, she speaks as a woman who has lost her children. And her orientation, theologically, is that she didn't deserve what happened to her, that God, if God is punishing her for something, God has over-punished her, and she sees no hope for the future, she doesn't want to forgive. She doesn't want to submit. She's just angry about what has happened and wants others to acknowledge what has happened to her. And the book, Lamentations, lets her speak that and doesn't correct her. There's another figure, the strong man, who has almost the opposite reaction, which is his, his theology is we suffered because we did something wrong and God is punishing us and therefore we ought to accept the punishment and God will eventually relent and, we'll, and then we'll have a new future. we just got to be patient and confess what we did. So those two characters couldn't really be any more different than you could imagine how they would have trouble being part of a community together. Lamentations creates this scene in which when the community as a voice finally speaks in the last chapter as, as a we, It constructs its speech so that both Daughter Zion and the strong man can say the words even though they mean something different when they say them. So it allows the community to stay together, to speak as one, even though they have fundamental disagreements about their theological perspective. I just think it's a beautiful idea of an artistically written book is so suggestive of the ways that we as communities of faith may be called upon to find ways of letting people on divergent, different perspectives be part of our community without, without having to settle on one or the other.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson, Jr. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for today. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to things not seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest and a professor of theology here in Chicago and That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So, that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Williamson, Jr. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for today. Well, one of the most fascinating chapters for me in your book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, was when you dealt with the Song of Songs. And I've taught some early church history and early Christian spirituality, and I'm aware that early mystics, early spiritual writers loved the Song of Songs. So if we look at Origen or Augustine or Pseudo-Dionysius or Gregory of Nyssa, I mean, the list goes on. They all wrote commentaries on the Song of Songs, but now... We've kind of lost sight of that book. Now, why, first of all, has the Song of Songs changed in its focus for Christian commentary maybe over the last century?
1: Well, I think the reason that early church fathers and and the early rabbis were so excited about the Song of Songs is because they interpreted it as a love song between. Uh, God and Israel, or between Jesus and the Church, or between Jesus and the individual human soul, and so it was. This, if you read it that way, it's this, it's this beautiful expression of the passionate love that uh, that the divine has for for us as human beings, and it's a it's just a really beautiful idea. and in the book, I, I read the Song of Songs that way and, and encourage us to think about what it means to have a God who um, who loves us uh, so passionately. On the face of it, though, the Song of Songs really is love poetry that's written between two human characters, a, a young woman and a young man, they seem to be just kind of at the beginning of their uh, sort of awakening into what it means to be an adult with sexual desires and, and feelings and so i think that that makes some readers uncomfortable like how do we how do we really talk about sex and sexuality in the context of the church or uh, especially in the context uh, of the bible uh, and i i think often we just we don't really know how to do that and so we just kind of stopped uh, stopped doing it
0: One of the things in this chapter on the Song of Songs that also struck me was the way in which you invite and demonstrate the multi-levels of readings that this book has gone through through the Christian tradition and through the Jewish tradition as well. So it's not just to read it as sensual poetry. It's not enough to read it as allegory. It's not enough to read it as a model of how God loves the world. But if we can find a way to weave all of those readings together, we begin to get a picture of what this book actually contains for us as believers. Is First of all, have I gotten that correctly from you?
1: Yeah, that's well said, and I I think that's always true of the biblical text is that the biblical text always exceeds any single interpretation that we can give it. It is a text that is trying to contain these spiritual and divine truths, and to imagine that we can do that in any single kind of reading seems crazy to me. And so I think that we're always looking at different ways we can read any biblical text and the riches of the bible kind of always call us into in, into more interpretations and different ways of trying to get at what oh, oh, what is this text contain the Song of Songs in particular, I think, is really rich ground for that. So we've been talking about the kind of, just, let's just read it as a story of of love between two human characters, and there's a lot one can learn that way. Let's read it as an allegory of God um, as the male character and humankind as the female character. And so when we read God as the male character, then we have a God is a little unpredictable going and coming. But when we if you reverse the allegory and think of God as the female and us as the male, then we're the ones who are a little unpredictable and we're the ones who wander around and are not always present. And God is the one who's kind of waiting for us and hoping to embrace us and is is the steady presence in the book. So that was a new idea for me that uh Reverend Maynard O'Connell suggested. But I I thought it adds a really nice richness to the ways that we can think about God and humanity through the song songs.
0: We've only begun to scratch the surface of this book that you've written because you've also got a chapter on the book of Ecclesiastes and a, and a chapter on the book of Esther. And we we don't have time, unfortunately, to get into those books as well. But I wonder if, as we're coming to the close of the conversation, you could sum up for our listeners the value that you have found as you have gone back into these five books and you've explored and you've pulled out the treasures that you've discovered there?
1: One of the things that I have really appreciated uh, since the book has come out and I've been invited to speak in some places, and I've heard feedback from some readers, and I even had a a review that came out a, a few weeks back by a more conservative Christian reader than I am. And some of the feedback that I've been getting is from people who say, I disagree with where you come out on this book. Like, and the, I disagree with the way that you read the Song of Songs, but I learned so much from the way that you engage Song of Songs, and it, it brought me out in a different place, right? And I, I really love that, that. I mean, this is the whole idea of the book, right, is that I'm not trying to read the book and say, you ought to read it the way I do. I'm trying to read, the, read these books and say, here is how I'm opening up the book. What do you see there? I think that that really, readers have been engaging the book that way to say, paying close attention to what's happening in these books is enriching my own reading of the Bible, even though they may disagree with, with everything that I say. Every conclusion I draw, they might disagree with. Um, they're still finding some some
0: richness in the process. Well, Robert Williamson, I just have to say that this book opened up for me things that I had never seen in these books before and have have drawn me back into reading and rereading them with joy and delight. And I just want to thank you again for taking the time to speak to us today, because uh, this book is incredible. And I hope that a lot of people that are listening will will pick it up and learn from and benefit from the treasures that are there.
1: Thank you, David. I appreciate it. This conversation has been really enjoyable for me, and you've, you've helped me even open up the books in, in different ways than I had done before.
0: We've been speaking today with Robert Williamson, Jr. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and a founding pastor of Mercy Community Church of Little Rock, Arkansas. His work appears in the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament, Dead Sea Discoveries, and Teaching Theology and Religion. It also appears online at OnScripture. Huffington Post, Sojourners, and Political Theology Today. He's edited Imagination, Ideology, and Inspiration, Echoes of Walter Bergerman in a New Generation. We've been discussing his recent book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, Recovering the Five Scrolls for Today. Bobby, thank you again. This was a great conversation, and I, my listeners are going to love it.
1: Oh, well, good. I, I have certainly enjoyed it, and I, I love uh, talking with you about you—, you uh you see good things in the text and, and, and ask good questions so I, I appreciate it very much
0: I'm, I, I, I'm serious when I say the next time I get a chance to teach Old Testament and hopefully that'll be soon uh, I'm going to make sure that this is one of the books because I think this especially the way that you weave together um, the old with the contemporary conversation It just it's very deft and, and really really nice oh, thank you Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keejian, made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on patreon you can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash not seen radio that's patreo ncom com slash not seen radio you can follow us on twitter at not seen radio visit us on facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests that's facebook.com slash things not seen radio